This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder. My guest today is Mike Wash, Chief Information Officer of the National Archives and Record Administration. Uh, Mr. Wash, thank you very much for uh, talking with, with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. Tell me about your background. Uh, your education, first of all, you was in electrical engineering, is that correct? That's correct. I'm a, I'm a graduate of Purdue University with a bachelor's in electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And one of your first employers was, was Kodak, uh, I believe, but was that because of your... And, and you're also a photographer, so was that deliberate? Um, not entirely deliberate, um, but I've, I've been a photographer for actually most of my life, and I was a high school photographer for sports and events and things like that. And um, when I was going to, to Purdue studying electrical engineering, I had the opportunity to um, join the, the cooperative um, education program at Purdue Co-op. And I, when I was a freshman, and when I was looking for possible companies to work for as a, as a co-op, which is like a work-study program, you would work a semester, then you'd go back and study for a semester. So extended the length of time in school, but you gained really valuable experience throughout the, the process. One of the companies that I interviewed with was Kodak, and Kodak was uh, kind enough to offer me a position. And um, it worked out really well, and, and I was with Kodak for quite some time. Now, what, what year was that that you joined Kodak? I joined Kodak in 1973, which was a really interesting time for Kodak because it was in a period where consumer photography was still growing uh, dramatically, and Kodak was right in the center of that market, you know, developing new cameras, new film formats, and the associated photo processing equipment to really participate in every one of the life cycle stages of consumer photography. And the the intention of Kodak was to continue to grow photography in the consumer market, making it a, a natural part of, of day-to-day experiences of the consumers, driving more film sales and more pictures and things like that. So it was a, a very interesting time. So what did you do? In, you said that you were there for Kodak for uh, a long time. It was a couple of decades, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, what did you do in the course of your, 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 your work at Kodak? Um, some of my early days at Kodak, I was actually in a, in a technology lab. I was a, a technologist um, with my electrical engineering background. And in the early 70s, Kodak... Um, was actually a, a very, very vertically oriented company where most of the, the manufacturing equipment and piece part manufacturing was, was done at Kodak that led into their products. And in particular, in the early 70s, they were, um, we were introducing more automatic exposure control mechanisms into simple consumer point-and-shoot cameras to make pictures better. And we actually uh, developed uh, integrated circuit manufacturing capability within Kodak, which was probably an extreme of vertical structures within a manufacturing company. So early parts of my career, 
I was doing analysis activities on integrated circuits that were manufactured by Kodak, helping to improve the process and quality of those those small circuits that were used for exposure control and other applications in cameras. Um, later in my early days of Kodak, I got involved in a startup activity within Kodak for high-capacity storage devices, digital storage devices, because in the early 1980s, it was really clear to Kodak management that the the end of film was on the horizon. Oh, is that so, right? Is that right? Oh, that's yeah. that's pretty long ago, the early 1980s. It was it was right around 1980, 1981, when it was really clear that you know the 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 end of film was coming how soon it was coming was a big question but if you look at at the the economics of Eastman Kodak com- company back in the the 60s and 70s and 80s the majority of the the earnings associated with Eastman Kodak came from film so film was the the driver of Eastman Kodak and the the hardware like cameras and photo processing equipment, were the supporting devices to continue the growth of film, which was the the revenue generator. So with the threat of film going away, Kodak was uh, on the search for another consumable that was really, since Kodak was a consumable business with film, another consumable that they could participate in. So diversification started to occur at Kodak, and one of the lines of business that was created was something called a mass memory division, where we started to to participate in uh, high-capacity storage, optical storage, and also magnetic storage. And my role as a technologist and early-stage product developer was in the, the high-capacity magnetic storage arena. And at that point in time, this is now 1983-84 timeframe, we were building three, six, and ten megabyte removable floppy devices, working closely with um, innovative companies on the West Coast. And my job was to transfer that technology of data storage to Kodak. It was really fascinating. Hmm. Um, that whole activity was was really interesting. The bet that the chip that that Kodak played at that point in time was that. A removable storage device would be the replacement for film in a in a digital camera, and that removable storage device would be some sort of rotating media, magnetic or optical. The bet didn't play. You know the the fact that a removable storage device would be a part of a digital camera was true, but the the dramatic reduction in cost of solid state storage was not anticipated. So our chips on the rotating media were misplaced. So, so can, you trace, can you trace that directly to the, the SIM cards that go into digital cameras now? Is there a direct relationship? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if, if, you, if you could roll back the clock and look at the cost of technology in the early 1980s, you would see that the, the cost per megabyte of rotating media was much lower than the cost per megabyte of solid-state media, but the crossover happened very dramatically, and it showed that the, due to things like Moore's Law, 
the cost of the magnetic storage and the the um, convenience of magnetic or of of solid state storage would far surpass the cost and usability of of rotating media. So in the in the latter part of the 1980s, like 87, 88 time frame, Kodak exited that business of high-capacity storage magnetic devices, which was the division I was a part of. I then moved into an advanced development group working on the Kodak Advantix system, the, the last consumer film format. And um, that activity was really leveraging my, my data storage and um, data management uh, knowledge from my, my earlier days at Kodak. And I was tasked with uh, creating a, a information exchange model and uh, design for the photographic system that would allow metadata to be captured on, on conventional photographic film so that that metadata could lead forward into either the documentation of images, so date, time, title, but also capture scene-specific data, like type of illuminant, whether a flash was used, whether the, fla whether the flash returned to the camera, and then apply that to improving the quality of consumer images. Wow. And that was the basis of the advanced photo system, APS, and Kodak brand name Advantix. So that activity was, um, was foundational, actually, to me, because it was really getting into a, a, a data modeling type of approach, creating essentially a film data management system that rolled forward into many of the formats that you see today on on digital cameras that capture metadata associated with images. So the well, same types of things were captured. So they're, they're, they're two different, you know, one's a tangible, tangible medium film, and the other one is is you know digital is is not so was was it was it a big leap to to take all the to take the uh, uh, the results of your work and, and and bring it over into the digital world it's it's same thing but just a, a different media I don't think it was all that much of a leap the because the the type of data that needed to be collected was very logical and for a digital camera, it was actually very easy to do because it was already data storage. That's how cap images were captured. It was structuring that data storage to actually capture the metadata in addition to the image data. In the film product, it was a it was a much bigger leap because of the the inconsistencies, if you will, between an analog process of exposing emulsion on film and a digital process of capturing data associated with that image. And the solution, which was really very innovative, was to apply a virtually transparent magnetic coating on the back of the film that could be used to capture the digital data while the emulsion on the front side of the film, if you will, was used to capture the the, the optical data associated with the, with the picture itself. Cool. So it was, you know, a, it was a very, it was a very innovative way of solving a problem, and allowing the photographic system to be unimpeded 
by uh, the application of a digital technology. It was really very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and I'm I'm anxious to get to your your federal government work. So, I, um, but but I, I want to understand the transition better from 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 Kodak to uh, to GPO uh, throughout the '90s. Uh, what, what, towards the end of Kodak, what was going on? Uh, towards the end of your stint at Kodak, the last part of my my activity at Kodak, after working on the advanced photo system, was I, I moved into the the photo processing line of business, and this was in the the later '90s, and that business was. Um, your typical traditional photo processing of you develop film, you shine light through film onto paper, and then the paper is processed and you get your prints back. That's the way film processing has been for 100 years or so. The The challenge that was upon Kodak and the industry was how do we apply photo processing broadly to support enhanced consumer film images or digital images. So we needed to be able to accept digital, manage that data, create prints, and be able to use a similar delivery mechanism, if consumers so chose, uh, to provide those images back. So uh, a strategy and a transformation was required for the, the photo processing industry, and my job was to develop a strategy uh, execute that strategy and move Kodak into a digital photo processing world. The culmination of that was in 2002 with the launch of Kodak Perfect Touch Processing. Uh, Kodak Perfect Touch Processing enhanced images. The tagline was make uh, bad pictures good and good pictures great. And it was through digital processing of images, whether scanned negatives or digital capture and do that through a distributed, large digital system of processing image data and then digitally um, writing that on photographic or inkjet or soft copy display of enhanced images. It included um, other features like uh, eliminating red eye from from consumer photos, the, the flash that causes the, the red the red eye and removing shadows, etc. But the key to that, which leads into my government service, is that it was a very large digital system and, a, and an architected, architected digital infrastructure that needed to work with um, low-volume devices like walk-up kiosks, to retail devices, one-hour photo, to very high-volume, high-capacity wholesale operations. So the architecture and the strategy had to support a digital system throughout. It was a, um, a digital information system that, from like our world today in, in the archives as well as GPO, uh, packages of data with, with rich metadata associated with it, and the metadata associated with images was what print format, um, any type of border, as well as the attributes associated with making the pictures better. It sounds so, like you... It, I'm sorry, go on, sir. Uh, so I, I guess the, the, the aspect of that challenge at Kodak of developing a digital infrastructure for photo finishing is what eventually led me to... Uh, 
be invited to help the government printing office with their transformation from traditional print-centric operations to digital publication type of operations. So you were invited? I was. Um, I had Actually, after the launch of Kodak Perfect Touch, um, I, I left Kodak and worked for a, a short period of time, about a year and a half, for a, a company involved in, in um, durable graphics. It's a nice way of saying sign manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And they were transforming their business from a traditional sign manufacturing of cut vinyl with letters pasted to glass and things like that to a very wide format, um, a wide format inkjet durable graphic like a bus wrap or a billboard. And my experience in the digital systems and the digital imaging systems and inkjet systems, since we participated in that as an output mechanism for photo finishing, um, led me to that company. It was Gerber Scientific Products in, in Connecticut, where I was the uh, executive director of marketing and, and product management. So mm-hmm. my, my task there was to create a portfolio of, of products to really move Gerber Scientific Products into the digital world for sign making. So you were invited then... Uh, to to join uh, GPO and it, it sounds like uh, of all the things that you brought with you, uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of, of testing, user testing, and usability testing. I, I don't hear it that often in in government work, especially high tech government work. You just everyone informs each other or the technologists, and the thing is made. But you right. you know it's nice that you bring this this consumer angle and usability angle to the job. So can you tell me about your, your uh, early work at GPO? Or your, sure. work, your work at GPO in general? My, the starting point at GPO, and the, the invitation part was, while I was still at Gerber, I got a call from a recruiter uh, that was working for the public printer of the United States, which I had never heard of before, um, and saying that they were looking for someone to help develop a strategy and transform a federal agency into a digital publishing world. I didn't understand much of any of that, and I had to look up what a public printer was and learn a little bit about the government printing office and their rich history. But nonetheless, I got to meet the public printer, Bruce James, and we had uh, a number of long conversations, and he encouraged me to apply for the the position at, at GPO, which I did, and I was subsequently selected for the the position my my position initially was the chief technical officer at at the government printing office responsible for the development of strategy to transform the agency from print centric to to digital centric and um, the the challenge was really very fascinating you know GPO, the history of GPO in itself is fascinating, 150 years old, a culture of uh, being there as the the printing and publishing source for the federal government, Um, the on-demand printing and publisher for Congress, practically, if you will, since being um, located just up the street from the Capitol, close proximity, doing the, the printing and publishing. But at that point in time, 2004, um, GPO's 
experience in the digital world was about 10 years old because the GPO access for online access to publications was launched in the 1994 time frame. So it's been 10 years, and uh, their online activity had been somewhat limited. You know, it was like many early online activities of putting publications online. You put them online, you put them on a server, and, you know, provide some some rudimentary type of search capabilities to get access to documents that you hope are correct. What was needed was really more of a, a system based on the mission of GPO and the limited consumer needs that had been gathered. But the system really needed to be developed around um, a system that would be capable of, of accepting input from federal governments in whatever form, preserving that data in perpetuity since the the online access to publications was forever or in perpetuity the life of the federation and authenticate that information so that when it is received it would be assured by the user that it was actually authentic information from the federal government and provide permanent public access so the need was much more than what GPO access was providing, and it was really an opportunity to re-engineer and retool the the electronic systems of GPO to really meet the market needs, and that resulted in the launch of the GPO's federal digital system about three years ago now. Now, did you call it FDSIS, or how we, do you pronounce we, that? Internally, we call it FDSIS, the, okay. the federal digital system. Now this is a, and this is a, an extremely big deal on on, on dozens of fronts. Um, first of all, security. Can can you talk about how you, you, you've FDSIS uh, is is available to the public? You try to make it interactive and Web two O uh, to have a dialogue between the public and and the and the government regarding the documents. Um, but you also have to have high security. Can can you talk about that? And the security would be making sure that the data stays secure. Is is that the aspect that you're talking about? I, well, I'm just wondering, you know, what, what secure like when you open up government data to the public, oh. uh, uh, that that it just sounds touchy. <laughs> Maybe okay. it's not. Maybe it's not. No, it actually is. And um, there's the aspect of making sure that the the system itself is secure so that you have the, the normal, or fairly normal, I guess I would call it, the, the IT security aspect so that you have the right firewalls and the intrusion detection systems and things like that so that the, the data itself will stay secure and you'd be assured that any sort of hacks um, are being prohibited by best practices in the cybersecurity world for in preventing intrusion, et cetera. There's that aspect of it, and that's all there, and that has to be a part of any federal system today. The other aspect um, about assuring the end user of, of information, or in, a, in GPO's case, the publications, ensuring that those publications delivered to the end users are indeed um, authentic, and you can be assured that they haven't been hacked. 
the, the technology, and that was one of the four principal aspects of the federal digital system, and we called it authentication. There was the, the, the versioning, the preservation, authentication, and permanent public access. So the, the authentication element was really covered in our solution through using digital signatures. And part of the metadata that, that really starts with when digital content is, is accepted into the FDSYS system, there, there's the beginning of the chain of custody, of understanding where the data came from, who the author was, if it's available, and all of that is captured in metadata. And then when it's put into a rendered form for eventual access, we could, at GPO, apply a digital signature to that with the, the hashing of the data and, and providing a means to, to make sure that the data is unaltered when received, that chain of custody is actually invoked so that if anybody ever needed to understand where the, the data came from, GPO would be able to provide that chain of custody information. But the, the digital signature associated with the content itself was the, the mechanism by which an end user, upon receiving this information, could could see and be assured that what they have received has not been altered in any way since it was released from the government for their use. Sure. And it would be that assurance that will give them you know, confidence that the material that they received was indeed authentic. And in addition, this all this information is networked uh, between federal institutions, is that correct? Uh, yes and no. There, there's some networking that takes place, but it's it's not a ubiquitous network today. And I think that's one of our challenges looking to the future. There are certainly very good examples of networking. For example, GPO's very close association with the National Archives and the Office of the Federal Register. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a... Um, there's a network there where agencies that are active in the, the rules and regulation aspects of government, they can submit their content to the Federal Register over a network using uh, PKI and digital signatures <clears throat> that the Federal Register will be able to use that information to know that that, that content hasn't been altered from the agency to the Federal Register, and then they do their publication activities of actually composing a Federal Register, and then their their version of that Federal Register is securely <clears throat> transmitted to, um, losing my voice, I'm sorry. Did, did you want to take a, a moment to get a <coughs> glass of water? I'll edit all this out of the, the podcast, of course. I just need to take a drink. Hang on. Okay, I'm back. Um, then the the Federal Register um, securely transmits um, the publication of the Federal Register to GPO, where it is printed and distributed as well as posted online. So that's a good example of a network from multiple agencies to an electronic repository for access, but it's not it's not ubiquitous across. Uh, the government yet, but that's that's a goal. Yeah, it has to be, and 
because more and more data is being born digital and getting access to that data through either a records management process or the publication process needs to be more and more seamless because uh, without that, transporting large quantities of digital data uh, becomes unwieldy. As a as an example for you, the National Archives um, in the summer of this year took receipt of the the 2010 census. <clears throat> so the the Census Bureau released the 2010 census to us, which we need to keep under wraps for another 71 years because of the, you know, Title 13 <clears throat> stipulates that. Um, the census needs to be closed for 72 years. So the the 2010 census was the first census that was entirely electronic, and the census gathered all that data together during their, their normal census gathering process, and it amounted to over 300 terabytes of data. It's mm, mm. a lot of data. The only way to move large quantities of data today in a very time-efficient manner, is on a truck. Mm-hmm. So you you put a, a rack of storage, you know, on a truck, move it to from point A to point B, and then you go through the process of assuring that nothing was damaged or lost in transit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just an example of the the challenge that the government and you know the data exchange. Um, challenges of today are really starting to emerge that, you know, particularly in the federal government, there are lots of agencies that generate an awful lot of data, and to eventually move that into um, an an electronic records archiving capability, which is part of NARA's mission, the movement of that data is going to be very difficult. Well, we only have... um Looks like about five more minutes of your time left. Um, let's talk about NARA. Okay. Your work at NARA. Uh, can you can you tell me a bit about that? What your uh, what di- what's different from the work at uh, at GPO? What are you doing at NARA? <clears throat> the work is similar in many ways, but also different. So it's it's a mix. The the similarities are that the work at GPO was to create a, a world class information management system that would preserve, authenticate, and make information permanently accessible. And that those simple words imply an awful lot of architecture and technology to have confidence that the solution will do it. NARA, with their participation in electronic records, born digital or reformatted records into an electronic form, needs to ensure permanent public access to records in the electronic form. So similarities there. Um, The differences are GPO worked in publications, which is a subset of a much broader scope of records. So the scope is larger at NARA. The the need to manage, have world-class information management capabilities is about the same. Um, Another key difference between GPO's experience and the NARA experience is that at GPO, uh, I had the luxury of of doing a greenfield project. There was um, a need 
for a replacement to GPO access and a need based on the agency head, the public printer's desire to re-engineer GPO to allow it to really emerge as a as a as a world-class um, content-centric digital operation. So what does it What does that mean? A, a greenfield project. Greenfield means um, it, it's a, it's a term where you start from scratch. Okay. So you know so you, you have you, a greenfield and you can plow it and start sowing your seeds and growing what you want. So at GPO, it wasn't. You have GPO access, fix it, and make it better. Let's assume that it just lives on to a point, and let's replace it with something that really meets our needs. The experience here at NARA is that the Electronic Records Archives program started in the, in the mid-2000s and is in production now. So it was coming into an environment that, where a system existed, where a lot of investment has been made, and the challenge is to uh, support it, enhance it, allow it to continue to move forward to meet the agency and the government's need um, as best we can. So it's certainly not a green field. This field is is filled. You know, it's it's got lots of plants in it already. It's a matter of uh, optimizing and getting the most out of it and continuing it. Does does the uh, electronic records archive talk to FDSIS? It, it not um, yes and no. I hate to say that, but uh, in the in the no aspect of it is that there's no direct connection. So it's not that we publish material from the electronic records archives directly into FDSIS. Okay. The yes part of it, though, is we have submitted information from the archives to be hosted and made available on FDSIS and perfect example of that was last week, um, and it was with the release of the, the transcripts from the Nixon testimony from the, the 1970s. We, um, we had the authority to release those transcripts as of noon last Thursday, November 10th, and I worked with GPO and since we have a, a long-standing relationship with GPO through the Federal Register and the publishing of the Federal Register, I, I contacted GPO and asked if they would be willing to host this content for for NARA, and their response was yes, of course. And we provided that inf that content to them, and they participated in the launch or the release of the Nixon testimony, and it was it was a wonderful success. Um, the reason that we turned to GPO and actually a few others as well for hosting this material was that we needed confidence that the the access to these very um, high availability and high desirability type of records would be seamless and wouldn't be interrupted by any sort of you know demand on a network. If we were to try to have hosted it here at NARA on um, our network, which is really more of a, uh, it's it's a reasonably good network, but it, it isn't expected to um, support extremely high demand type of requests. Whereas GPO is because that's what they do; they they publish, and so people exactly work. Right. right. And we built FDSIS with the capability of of putting very attractive and and high demand 
collections up in a content delivery network up in the cloud so that it could scale you know immensely to meet whatever demand happens to be hitting that that access to content so so it's a work it's a workhorse it's a workhorse and you know the, the earlier this week as i was gathering the data of just you know how did the how did the access performance really fare um, as of noon on thursday the the release went out and we started monitoring our website which was actually a destination to get redirects to go find the data so we provided the context of the nixon transcripts and click here if you'd like to go to gpo to get access to the data and click here for scribd and our archives wiki so the others that we had the data that that i've received particularly from gpo which was the the, the top source of the of the material at least on the on the list was that in the first day which was just from noon thursday to the end of day thursday they had provided over 1.6 terabytes of downloads oh my gosh oh huge my gosh. oh my gosh and, and by sunday after four days they were approaching four terabytes oh my gosh yeah and individually so, individually the files can't be that large this is cumulative right yeah, it's cumulative. The, the the total, there was 37 files, not a big number of files. The total of all 37 files was only 250 megabytes. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Right? And, you know, so each individual, and it was chunked into individual files so that if somebody wanted to download a file and be able to get quick access, it would be modestly sized between 5 and 10 megabytes, so it wouldn't take forever to download a file. Yeah. But there was, you know, over 14,000 individual file requests on GPO day one and about 6,000 total requests because you could click on one, one access request to get the entire 250 megabytes. So, and of course, it'll it'll continue to be it'll continue to live on as a historical resource. So you've got this you've got this immediate rush of interest, and then it'll you know it'll just have a steady flow. That's as right. time goes on. And that you know the the CDN capability, the content delivery network, is ideally suited for that type of surge. You know, there, there was this enormous peak day one, which was expected, and then it tails off to you know. A, a much more modest type of, of access request. Mm -hmm. The CDN and using cloud types of services is perfect for that because it, it's you know immediately scalable to meet the demand. It was a wonderful success story of the, the relationship between the government printing office and the National Archives. Do you have time for one last question, sir? Yes. Tell me about the Cloud First Initiative and your your work with cloud technology and NARA's goals with cloud technology. How, how's that going? Um, let me talk first about Cloud First. Okay. The, the Cloud First Initiative is a, a great concept and a good way of, of priming the pump, if you will. Um, it was a, a challenge imposed by OMB in the, the federal CIO to make sure that you think about cloud first. And one of the, the primer initiatives was put three of your applications in a cloud or show that you can actually host this outside. So I call it a, a primer because, you know, it, it, it 
it was really intended to make sure that, that when new systems or existing systems coming up for refresh are being considered, think about the cloud because the ultimate end goal is that federal computing and storage will be in the cloud, in a cloud type of environment. And this is helping people and CIOs in particular start to understand, you know, how to how to approach it, how to structure it, etc. The end game, which I think is where NARA will really play, and, and I'll back up. We we developed our initiatives. We we do some hosted activities today to get some experience in the cloud. And then the a good example was the one like I just gave of of publishing information through GPO in the cloud for, you know, unfettered access for a high demand type of, of collection. Longer term though, federal government with NARA being in in one of the ideal seats uh, relative to the long term view is that as the federal government moves to the cloud and needs to move to the cloud, the architecture of the data and the computing in that cloud becomes absolutely critical. The example that I gave earlier of the 2010 census of over 300 terabytes mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to move 300 terabytes uh, is just an example of today's problem and will get exasperated over time in the future. The cloud will provide us as the federal government with the ability of leaving data at rest so that through effective utilization of metadata associated with data, um, the data that is created by various federal agencies can stay at rest and the, the long-term preservation or custodial nature of that data will be accomplished through the relationship of the storage in the cloud and association between agencies. So um, Environmental Protection Agency, for example, moves some of their records, quotes, moves some of their records from their, their active management into a records management process where those records move into a temporary record status, similar to paper records today. They haven't turned over those records necessarily to the National Archives, but the National Archives will be maintaining those records on their behalf until a final disposition of those records is is determined of whether the records can be permanently stored, therefore accessioned to the National Archives, so the ownership is transferred to the archives for permanent custodialship, or those records can be eliminated because they're not in the category of permanent records. All of that quote-unquote movement in the future in a cloud environment can be done with simple management of metadata. It, it imposes on agencies like NARA that will have long-term responsibility for electronic records to put the the process and the, the standards and the methodology in place so that we can do long-term preservation and access of those records while they reside in a distributed cloud structure within the federal government. It, it creates a completely different challenge than what we have had for the last decade or so of developing 
infrastructure and data centers that you can go out and hug your server once a day and say, <laughs> that's where my data is. And you can play with it and then make sure that you do your preservation process. Now it's going to be, you don't know, you don't know where it is. You just know that it's there. And we'll have to be able to do those preservation processes in the virtual world of cloud storage. Well, and that takes the burden of, of, uh, of uh, responsibility for hardware off of, off of you. That's right. And it has to get there so that it, with the data at rest model, which I think is where we really need to start focusing, the, the original data storage will be acquired by agencies and supported in the cloud and then the National Archives through archival processes, preservation processes, and access management will manage that data once it becomes under the, the custodial nature of the archives or permanent accession nature of the archives. So, you know, in a, in a perfect world, in the long-term sense, the National Archives will actually have no storage. We'll just be managing the storage in the cloud for the category of, of temporary and permanent records. And it, and it goes, I'm sorry, go on, sir. And the creation of the, the, the need for storage is really driven by the agencies themselves. So you buy storage once. And, and of course, it, it's probably a whole other conversation about, about uh, who, who is hosting it in the cloud and, again, security. Security is not of the data and authentication, but security in general, you know, third parties would be taking care of all this, but that's a whole other thing, isn't it? That's right, and that's where you you really get into service level agreements with uh, with qualified and certified cloud providers, which is, you know, what um, GSA has been working on with the Cloud First initiatives of identifying the, the qualified uh, federal cloud providers, so... That that activity will continue, and it becomes a, almost like a GSA buy. Like you're buying pencils, you'll buy storage off of a GSA schedule from a from a certified cloud provider. Did you have a chance to take a look at that the blog story? I sure did. So I'm curious as to, given your background, whether you thought that was feasible or not to put a one-touch thing. Whether it would be easy to add photo metadata to uh, uh, cameras. Um, you know, the, the concept is, is spot on. It's, it's the thing that needs to get done. Doing the one touch, um, I think the hardest part is going to be, you know, dealing with the, the variable nature of what type of, of information that, that you would use associated with the one touch, much like, the the examples that were given about the old days of writing on the back of the photos mm-hmm. that was freeform you know it it could be um, it could be the people that are in the picture it could be where the picture was taken um, if it was more of an artistic shot it could be more uh, about the the context associated with the picture of uh, how the light was or what the the situation was like I mean. It could be um, uh, like if you're photographing the ocean um, a few hours before a hurricane was about to hit. It could be saying that you know this is T minus five hours before the, the forecasted hurricane hit or something like that. So 
um, trying to to create almost the all things to all people type of one touch, I think is going to be pretty hard. While at, at Kodak, <clears throat> we we wrestled with this a little bit because uh, actually quite a bit because we we maintained a, a registry of un, unmet consumer needs and things on that list were uh, things that eventually rolled out into a, a consumer product or service. One of the, the things, or a number of the things on this list of unmet consumer needs was documenting information about the photo. You know, all the things that, that you really address in your, your blog. And it, some of the, the ways that we were looking at of addressing that was with built-in captions. So on the Advantix camera, some of the, the more advanced Advantix cameras had built-in captions that you could choose, which I don't think anybody ever really utilized. But you scroll through a menu to say birthday party, holiday, wedding, vacation, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Difficult to use. Um, then there was also some high-end APS type of advanced photo system cameras with the Advantix film format that could actually have a keyboard so that you could actually type stuff in and it would be captured in the metadata fields associated with even the film capture. Um, then, you know, which is kind of surprising to understand now, uh, back in the now early 90s, we started thinking about the concept of using GPS and having at least an automatic longitude-latitude um, associated with a picture, and then possibly considering some lookups of, like, if your longe and lat are uh, in the proximity of uh, Mount Rushmore, for example, it would say longe lat Mount Rushmore. Um, neat ways of, of starting to capture what could likely be the types of information that a consumer would want to put on a picture but in the early 90s, the privacy advocates kind of went nuts with that whole oh, concept yeah. of recording where you were when you took the picture, mm -hmm. which is all out the window now with all the the uh, geo-tracking that's done with Twitter and all these other social things. It's yep. like that's, that's common day stuff. Anyway, I'm babbling on, but... Um, <laughs> well, so, so as far as the field, you're, you're talking about... Uh, 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 I, I, it sounded like you're talking about uh, the field itself that the information would go into, that it would just be kind of a, a catch-all field. And, and that's why I was thinking, you know, a, a, a professional can open up the, the, the exit table or have d better soft. They, they just, just Photoshop and add all the relevant detail, plus there's whatever the camera captures. Uh, but just a rank amateur, just somebody who really doesn't want to futz with the camera too much can yeah. type in something they don't need to think about fields or metadata or any of that so is is that feasible is that possible oh i think it is possible it's it's getting the mechanism to the point where it would be readily used to to kind of read on that unmet need because i think everyone not most everyone nearly everyone would agree that that some sort of data associated with an image is valuable it's mm -hmm. a it's something that they would love to have because they, they always would like to know more about the picture. But doing it in a way that, that is consistent with consumer 
photographic practices today is the hard part because you know I, I think the challenge is how do you do it in a way that actually requires almost zero additional effort yeah, yeah. because the the serious amateurs like me or the pros um, are are pretty anal about their pictures and and they're the ones that'll easily go into the exif files and add yeah. metadata or caption like I use smugmug for all of my pictures and I go through and always caption things or put in some information about it but the typical consumer using an iPhone camera or you know some small point and shoot camera are going to allocate zero time to do the record keeping that they wish they had yeah and it's figuring out a way of being able to do that, which is like the 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 key innovation that that needs to be developed. Yeah. I think if, if there was a way of of doing that, everybody would love it and use it. But it has to be easy. It, I, it has to be it has to be automatic. Yeah. I think beyond easy. And one last thing, going back to our first conversation, I was really pleased to see in your blog post about the the photo metadata mm-hmm. that you called out the uh, the Kodak Autographic series. That was really cool. Your <laughs> old camera. Yeah, that well, actually that was someone else that brought it to my attention. But I'll I'll tell them I'll tell them that it's a photographer actually at at, at the Library of Congress. And and that that but we've we've been running our blog since early summer. Uh, the average response that we've gotten from readers is about eight or ten responses per blog. That one's up to, it's in the 80s now. It's something like 85 people have responded so far. Well, you asked a question for people to download the image and see if they could see the data. So that that probably drives more engagement, which is good. It it does, but it also, some of the information that I got, this is one of the beauties of Web 2.0, is, is that I looked at, I asked them three questions. You know, the amateurs, what did they use, and... Can you see this? Well, everybody saw it, so that means it, you know, it's seeable. Uh, it's easily seeable. There's lots of good software out there, both free and, um, and commercial software. And most of the people, I am maybe almost 90% of the people were amateurs. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, is these are people who have computers. They saw that blog on computers. You know, what about, you know, this... Uh, I'm, I'm just assuming there's, there's a, there, that, that there's a wider area of interest out there, that lots of people still have photos on their cameras, and they're saying, geez, who is that? <laughs> right. you know, so so it's, it's a problem that goes, that goes pretty far, and, and people do want a solution. One of the suggestions that we got was to have voice-to-text in the yep. phone. So, so that, that, you know, I was thinking that as you were saying that we need to make it simple. Just the act of pushing a button and typing something in is not simple. But if you could push a button and say, this is Gina's 16th birthday party, and then end it, and that gets translated to text, that's a pretty good and solution. You, and, you know, the voice recognition technology is improving dramatically. Just in the past couple of years, just in the past yeah. two or three years. Yeah, Dragon used to be the leader, and now it's just standard on so many th- Google, Google voicemail. Yeah, and that'll that'll easily translate into a camera at low cost. It's it's going to be one of these cost thresholds. The uh, the things from the camera industry is, I mean, things had to cost like pennies for it to be able to to be introduced as a feature into a camera if it was really going to be a a widely used um, type of consumer camera, like the the magnetic aspect of the Advantage system. To put that into a camera, the total budget was twenty-five cents. 
Was that you know, too much, or was that? It did, was. It, it was on the verge of too much. At twenty-five cents of additional cost of goods. Yeah. So I mean, you, you're looking for tenths of penny here and there of trying to make it because you know all of that equates into either less margin or too high a price to to dissuade a consumer from buying your product. Mr. Wash, thank you very much for talking with me today. I appreciate it. It's been nice talking to you. And just so you know, I have an autographic on my desk. <laughs> wow. So yeah. you really did appreciate that. Wow. Absolutely. Does it have you have you messed with it? Does it work? Well, you have to buy the film. I, I have actually two autographic cameras. I have a this one is the model 3A, which is the big one, and I have a, a 2A at home, which is a smaller one. It does work, you know, because it was really just a matter of of having the the index length between images to allow the inner negative space between the negatives to accommodate the, an area where you actually scribe onto the back of the, the paper of the, of the film carrier. And then you just hold the little the camera with the little window up to a bright light for five or ten seconds and close the door, and it actually exposes your metadata onto the film between the negatives. How cool! It's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. Thank you very much again. Okay. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.